Thanks to the uh, team for leading us in worship and uh, bringing us to the throne of God and just to be able to revel in God's amazing love, His amazing grace to us this morning. You should have an outline on your seat if you want to use that this morning. It's on the reverse of the uh, bulletin and all the verses that we're looking at today are on there and also hopefully up on the screen as well for you. Now most of you will know that we had two students with us for the month. That uh, month just seems to have gone really, really quickly. Um, time's gone so quickly, but they were here for the last four weeks with us as a church, helping us out and hopefully learning as they've been here as well, learning how not to do things from me, learning how to do things from Ryan or vice versa, depending on uh, your opinion. Um, so we, hopefully they had a good time and we've had a good time with them and it's been great to have them with us. On Wednesday, I thought it would be really good to uh, just partly as a bit of a thank you to take them out and show them some of the area that they hadn't had a chance to see. Uh, hopefully while they're here, take them to see the most beautiful county on the face of the world. Uh, partly as a thank you, and partly just it would be a real shame for them not to see some beautiful countryside of Northumberland, that, not County Durham, I hasten to add. Um, so we set off on a whirlwind tour of Northumberland to try to see as many castles as we could in one day. We drove uh, to Belsay, then we drove to Elsdon, then we drove to Heppel, then we drove to Annick via Rothbury, then to Holy Island, then up to Bamburgh, Dunstanborough, then Walkers, and then home again. Uh, eight castles in one day. I thought that was pretty good going. Um, Northumberland Tourist Board are, are sending me uh, checks in the post for that. So it was an amazing day. We just kind of flew around, not literally, but flew around the county, saw some beautiful things, saw some amazing parts of uh, this wonderful county. And it was a pretty mad dash from all of these places, as you can imagine. But actually, each one of those places represented something really important in British history, in local history, lots of uh, key events with kings and queens and political uh, 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 leaders and some massively important events throughout history. And we could have spent a whole day in each of those places looking at them and, and finding out about them and enjoying them and so on. And today we're going to look at a, a passage in the Bible that might feel a little bit like that mad dash a little bit, uh, a, a kind of mad dash from one place to the other. And it, it lists a whole variety of different places that Paul and Barnabas and the, the early church leaders and disciples kind of went from one place to the other, or it kind of reads a bit like that, but actually it contains some really significant events, some key things that happened in the history of the early church, but also key things that we can learn from and some great lessons that we can take today. Now last week, Gary Blair got us restarted in our series looking at the book of the uh, Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles is the account of the actions or the activities of the apostles, and the word apostle just means uh, sent one, it, it kind of means God's special messenger. The apostles were the 12 disciples and a few others, Paul, who was added on to that group. And they were called God's special um, messenger because that was their very job, was to take the, the message of Jesus, the message of the good news about Jesus, the gospel, right across the world, right across the Roman Empire. They were God's special leaders to take this good news. And so this book called Acts is the account of how these 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, spread the good news about Jesus right across the known world of their day. And the section that we're going to read today is in Acts 14, 21 to 28. It takes place around 48 AD. It's about 16 years after Jesus has died, uh, risen from the dead, and ascended back up to heaven, about 16 years later. And Paul and Barnabas have gone on their very first missionary journey. And there's a map up there for you on the screen. And... They set out from Antioch, which is just inside the Turkish border today, although it was then was called Antioch in Syria. They set out from here. They went via Cyprus up into now what is modern-day Turkey then. This was called Asia Minor. And then they went from 
Pamphylia up to Antioch, and then Antioch to Iconium, Lystra, Derby, or Derby, and then back. And they traced their steps back and then sailed all the way back to where they'd come from in Antioch. And today we're looking at, they've got to Derby, and we're going to follow them back in a few verses from here all the way back to Antioch. And that's the, the bit that we're looking at today. So let's read uh, from Acts 19, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Acts 14. If you want to turn in your Bible, you can listen as well as I read the verses to you. On this great journey, some really significant things happened. Gary Blair was with us last week, and he showed us how Paul and Barnabas had been preaching the good news about Jesus, and Paul had been attacked by the crowd. The crowd had turned, hadn't they, viciously on Paul and Barnabas. One minute they were praising them wrongly, the next minute they attacked them. And Paul was stoned, uh, stoned with stones and rocks, and the people thought that, that they'd killed him. They left him for dead. That was how badly injured he was. And then... Uh, the bit we're going to read from today picks up in that story. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn to Acts chapter 14, and we're going to read from verse 19, which just gives us that context where Gary finished off last week. So Acts chapter 14 and verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left the Derby. They, re- they, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, this is Antioch in Syria, where they'd been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So this is Paul's first missionary journey, and it's the end, the last few verses, although quite a significant number of uh, events take place that bring this great first missionary journey to a close. And having been stoned almost to death, left for dead by the crowd, Paul recovered, probably as Gary said last week, with the miraculous intervention of God. doesn't say that, but you kind of assume that. And then they left Lystra and they went to, to Derby. And having arrived at Derby, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says this, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. And they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And unlike our trip around Northumberland, Paul and Barnabas weren't sightseeing. They weren't on a modern kind of tourist trip of Turkey. They were actually going around preaching and spreading the good news about Jesus, what we call the gospel. Spreading the good news was at the very heart. It was the sole reason for their journey. They weren't sightseeing. They were there to spread the good news. That was what they were doing there at great cost a great risk to themselves, and it drove all that they did. It was the very reason for them being there. They preached the good news in Derby, and Luke says they won a large number of disciples. Luke doesn't just say a large number of people trusted or responded in Jesus. He very deliberately says that they won a large number of disciples, and that's because trusting in Jesus is never just about saying a prayer and asking Jesus into our life. It's not just about becoming a convert. Trusting in Jesus is about a complete turnaround in lifestyle, that's what we call repentance. It's about becoming a a worshipper of God 
and it's about becoming a follower of Jesus, a disciple. And a disciple, we use the word quite often, we talk about discipleship or discipling, and it's one of these Christian words that we don't always perhaps fully understand really what it means, and I thought it's helpful just to put this little definition up. A disciple is someone who surrenders to Jesus, somebody who seeks to become like Jesus, someone who listens to what Jesus says, someone who follows where Jesus leads and obeys what Jesus says to them. That's a disciple. Well, a disciple of anybody, but a disciple specifically of Jesus here. A disciple is someone who surrenders to Jesus, who seeks to become like Jesus, listens to what Jesus says, follows where Jesus leads, and obeys what Jesus says to them. It's a whole life-consuming lifestyle, a life-consuming process that defines who we are. So anybody who becomes a Christian, by definition, has become a disciple. Discipleship isn't for a kind of an elite group of Christians who want to go on a bit further. If, we've, if, if we are a disciple, we've been born again. If we've been born again, we have become a disciple. Paul and Barnabas weren't just after people positively responding to their preaching. They were in the business of making disciples, people who gave themselves totally to Jesus. And Paul and Barnabas were disciples themselves. They were, in turn, making more disciples. And the intention was that these new disciples that they were making would go on to make other disciples. And that's how the gospel spreads, isn't it? One shall tell another. And I make a disciple of someone else who goes on to make a disciple of somebody else. And that's the the very essence of discipleship. This was Jesus' great command before he went back to heaven 16 years earlier to go into all the world, to these 12 disciples. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. Not just get some converts, but make disciples of all nations. And the intention was that these new disciples would then go on to make other disciples. The very definition of a disciple is somebody who goes on to make other disciples. And that's why Paul and Barnabas, after having fled, had to go back at very risk of their own lives. They wanted to go back because they wanted to disciple these people, help them to grow in their faith. They didn't want to just leave them as baby Christians. They wanted them to grow and and develop as followers of Jesus. They went back so that they could help the disciples grow in their faith and in turn go on and make other disciples. Luke says they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And in fact, Paul returned to Derby again on his second missionary journey, which we'll pick up in later weeks as we go through Acts. And in fact, Timothy, who became one of Paul's greatest disciples, actually was from Lystra. And it was from, probably from this very incident that Timothy eventually comes to faith or at some point in this process. Paul and Barnabas were committed to actively discipling these new Christians, these new disciples, to helping them grow in their faith, to equip them, to teach them, so that they could better follow Jesus and in turn help others follow Jesus. And as part of that process, Luke says this, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they'd put their trust. Each local church needs to be, it's the biblical pattern, needs to be led by a group of elders who can oversee, who can guide, who can lead, who can shepherd and can teach those in that church and help them to live out what it means to be a disciple. That's one of the main chief roles of an elder, is to help other people live out what it means to be a disciple. Being a disciple involves making other disciples. Making disciples of other people begins by sharing the good news with them, leading them to faith in Jesus, 
And then it involves that ongoing process of teaching them, equipping them, encouraging them, strengthening them, nurturing them, spurring them on to live for Jesus each day. So two questions for you this morning to think about as we reflect on this passage. Firstly, am I a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I surrendered my life to Jesus? Am I seeking to become like Jesus? Am I listening to what Jesus says day by day? Am I following where Jesus leads me? Am I obeying the things that Jesus says to me? principally through the Bible, of course. And secondly, if I'm a disciple of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who am I discipling? A disciple is someone who's meant to make other disciples. So if you are a disciple of Jesus, who are you discipling? If you've yet to surrender your life to Jesus and become his disciple, then can I challenge you and encourage you to do that today? And if you are a disciple, then if we're disciples, we should be discipling other people. There ought to be people in our lives that we're trying to lead firstly to initial faith in Christ and then to a life of ongoing surrender to the Lord Jesus and to growth in Jesus. The Bible talks about the older women in the church discipling the younger women. It talks about the older men discipling the younger men. That's the biblical pattern. And if you're not in some kind of relationship with another Christian discipling them or being discipled yourself, and both should be true, we should be Somebody should be discipling me and I should be discipling somebody else and that person in turn should be discipling someone else. That's the biblical pattern. Then if you're not doing that, then why not put that right and and, and identify somebody in this church perhaps or another church that you can be discipled by. It doesn't matter how old we are. We're never too old to come under somebody else's uh, guidance and to make ourselves accountable to somebody else. And we're never too new as a Christian to say, I can actually help somebody else. All I need to be is one step ahead of where they are at. And I can impart what I'm learning to them so that they can go on to disciple other people. It's very definitely something the elders of a church should be doing, but it's actually something that we should all be doing. We should all be disciples, making disciples. Luke shows us a very specific aspect of how Paul discipled these new disciples in Lystra, Iconium and Antioch. He says this, They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Part of the process of discipleship was and is strengthening and encouraging other Christians. Strengthening and encouraging those that we're seeking to disciple. And this is actually something we can and should be doing with every, you know, with all of ourselves, as we see each other, perhaps in need or struggling, to get alongside and encourage one another and strengthen one another. And Paul and Barnabas told them something that it was vital that they understood in this process. Disciples of Jesus will normally and often have a hard life. This is what Paul and Barnabas wanted to make sure these, these new disciples understood, that followers of Jesus will normally and often have a hard life. That is the norm. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Now, they weren't saying that a person has to go through hardships somehow to earn their way to heaven. That's not what Paul and Barnabas are saying. What they're saying is that those who trust in Jesus and surrender their lives to him will normally experience opposition and persecution. They will experience hardships before they enter into God's kingdom in that final state of going into God's presence forever. They were preparing these disciples for what was to follow. They were teaching them, they were equipping them for the future. They were making sure they knew what they were dealing with, that they knew what they were facing. They were going to face all sorts of opposition and persecution 
and hardships as a result of becoming disciples of Jesus. And it was really important that they understood that. It was really important that they knew what happened so that when it happened, they were prepared for it. Instead of being suddenly faced with persecution or hardships or opposition, and then their faith kind of knocked all over the place. And Paul was speaking from experience. In last week's passage, we saw that Paul was attacked by a mob and left for dead. Verse 19 says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. So Paul was speaking from experience. He knew what he was talking about. The normal experience for Christians, for disciples of Jesus, will be opposition, will be hardships and persecution. And we live, or we have lived, in a period of history in this country for the last 200 years or so, perhaps, where the church and where disciples of Jesus have generally been respected and treated very well. Perhaps a 200-year window in this country and in, perhaps in the West in general. But biblically and historically, that is abnormal. The church and Christians in general normally are not respected. You go back earlier than 200 years ago, people who, who lived by the Bible were burned to death in this country. People who stood by the gospel were put to death. It was a, that was normal. We were treated terribly. And around the world, that has, that has been the experience of believers right since the very first day. Opposition and hardships. And we've lived in this little window which has been unique, but the trouble is in the West and in this country, we think that's normal. We think that that is our, our kind of normal position and that if we're to face persecution, that will be abnormal. Whereas actually, it's the other way around. We're a very uh, small group of believers who... In the, in the big scheme of history and in the worldwide church, have a very abnormal situation where the church for the last 200 years or so has been at the center of the nation and increasingly we're seeing the church move to the edge of the nation where Christians are no longer respected or tolerated and actually quite the opposite is, is coming true. And we need to come to terms with the fact that this will increasingly become the reality. It's no use moaning, it's no use complaining, it's no use complaining about what's on TV or that the parliament are doing this or the government are doing this. That is just normal. And we can try and we can do our best to campaign and we should and, and, and represent ourselves in Parliament and all the rest of it. That's a good thing to do. But the normal experience for Christians throughout church history and around the world today and until Jesus comes again is to be on the fringe, is to be underground, is to be excluded from life. That is normal. And we've lived in a little abnormal bubble. The church and disciples of Jesus in this country will increasingly become not, not just uh, no longer respected, but disrespected. We will face increasing opposition and outright persecution, I believe, increasingly in this country. Paul wrote these words to Timothy, a man who was one of the disciples from Lystra. He says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Nothing a a ambiguous about that, is there? Everyone who wants to live a godly life, if we, if we follow Jesus, if we are real disciples of Jesus, we're going to stand out and we'll be persecuted, says Paul. And Jesus said these words to the original 12 disciples. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. Opposition and persecution are normal for disciples of Jesus. We've just been blessed to live in a country and in a period of history when that's not happened. But for most Christians in the world today, it's their daily experience. So we need to face up to this because it's going to happen. So we need to be ready for it. I'm not excited about it. I'm not looking forward to it. None of us are, I don't think, but we have to face the fact that increasingly this will become the reality in this country. That is what is going to happen. It is normal for the majority of the church worldwide. Some people say that when we trust in Jesus, we'll be blessed with health and wealth and prosperity and everything will be wonderful. 
But that is completely unbiblical. That's completely untrue and false. In this world, you'll have trouble, says Jesus. Not only will we have illnesses and job worries and relationship troubles and health issues and family problems, but we'll also have opposition and persecution. We will get sick. We will have problems with our money. We will have problems in life. These things are normal. It is, it is our normal experience. And until Jesus comes again, the, the Bible talks about our bodies wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed spiritually, but our bodies are falling apart. It's an, it's an, it's, it's an inevitable process, and we're going to have illnesses, and we're going to have family problems, and we're going to have relationship problems and job work. That is normal. Trusting in Jesus doesn't exempt us from all of those problems. And it certainly doesn't mean that we'll get rich and we'll get healthy and we'll get wealthy and we'll have a wonderful wife, uh, a wonderful, well, hopefully have a wonderful wife, but have a wonderful life. I have a wonderful wife. But those things are not guarantees. And the problem is so often, if we buy into the lie of health and wealth and prosperity, is that when we, and we say we don't, but often we do, because we believe that normal life should be good and wonderful, the kind of American dream where I'll have my house and my car and my kids and my family and my dreams and my career, and if I don't get those things, suddenly my, what's, what's life all about? Life isn't about those things. Life is about bringing glory to God. Life is about being a radical disciple of Jesus. And part, and part of that is opposition and persecution. So write this down. I need to be prepared for real hardships if I'm following Jesus. I need to be prepared. This is going to happen some way or other. I need to be prepared for real hardships if I'm following Jesus. If we're not, if we're not prepared for that, if we're not expecting it, for ill health, for money struggles, whatever it might be, or in this case persecution, then when they come, we might be tempted to quit following Jesus. People who quit following Jesus when life gets tough do so often, not always, but often because they've bought into a lie, often without even realizing it, that following Jesus will mean that everything in our lives will be good and will work out and we'll have that nice kind of 30-year plan of our life all kind of working out just as we'd hoped and we'll get everything we want. The Apostle Peter wrote these words. He said, In this you greatly rejoice. Talking about our faith, about the gospel. In this you greatly rejoice. Though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter says that it's possible to greatly rejoice in the blessings of what it means to have trusted in Jesus, to have our sins forgiven, to have a relationship with God, to have eternal life. It is possible to be rejoicing in that and yet at the same time to be suffering grief in all kinds of trials. Our joy isn't and shouldn't be dependent on our circumstances. We sing the song, don't we? You, know, you give, you take away. On the road marked with suffering, or when the sun's shining down on me, whether life is good or bad, I will still choose to say, blessed be your name. Our joy should be in Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us, not in whether we're healthy or rich or successful or getting all the things that we like in life. And Peter goes on to say that how we respond to the trials we, have, we face in life, whatever kind of trials they might be, how we respond to them reveals whether or not our faith in Jesus is actually genuine or not. How we respond to the trials we face in life, says Peter, shows, reveals whether our faith is genuine. When it's put through the fire, that refining fire, does it come out the other side and be revealed as, what it, as being genuine 
or do we drift away and turn our back on Jesus? So we need to face up to the fact that life is not going to be easy. We need to be prepared, especially here, for an increasing amount of opposition to the gospel, to the church, and to us as followers of Jesus. Will we still be meeting in a room like this with a sign outside in 20 years? I doubt it, to be quite honest with you. I'm not trying to be alarmist or, or making sort of statements. I really doubt whether we'll have signs outside. I suspect 20, 30 years the church will be underground. If the Lord hasn't come back, this country is going to look very, very different. And we need to get our heads around that because it's going to happen sooner or later. And that is normal for most Christians around the world throughout church history and around the world today. Now, having strengthened and encouraged the disciples in Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, Luke says, after going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. So, they're up here, and they've gone around this area, they're up to Antioch in, in, in Asia Minor, and they've come down to Perga, and then Pamphylia, and then Italia, ready to sail back to Antioch in Syria. And as they continue on this missionary journey, they stay focused on the core reason for their trip, to preach the word. In other words, to spread the word about Jesus, to spread the good news about Jesus. That stays right at their focus. I think if I'd been them, I'd have just thought, well, you know, I've been away for two, three years. I just want to get home now. If I go away for like a week, I'm just, you know, it's quite glad to get home. Three years down the road, these guys are still preaching the word. They're still preaching faithfully. Then Luke says, from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they'd been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. This has been a long journey, probably around two to three years of their life on this journey. 1,450 miles trip by land and sea. But they've been faithful to the task that God had given them. They've been instructed by the Holy Spirit years before to go and take the good news about Jesus to the known world, to those especially who weren't Jews, the Gentiles. And they'd done that, and many people had responded, had trusted in Jesus, and had surrendered their lives to him, and consequently had been saved for all eternity. They'd been given a huge task, a scary task. It must have seemed an impossible task. I mean, it's difficult to get our heads around, isn't it? But to, to, to think about traveling right across the, the, the Roman Empire, uh, a whole culture which was utterly pagan, completely and utterly opposite and contrary to the gospel that they were going to proclaim, the good news that they were going to proclaim. They didn't have any great budgets or plans or, or, or technology. They were just setting out to do this. It must have been really scary. Difficult to get our heads around this great task. But they were obedient to what God had told them to do, and they completed the work. Luke says they'd been committed to the grace of God for this task. In other words, the Christians back in their home church had handed them over to God in faith, trusting that God would provide for them financially, would look after them, would keep them safe, and would bless what they were going to do. They were faithful to God just as he was faithful to them. You know, I wonder, has God called you or me to do something for him? Has the Holy Spirit, like he did with Paul and Barnabas, has he laid on your heart something that he has called you to do? It may be a very small, in this world's eyes, a very small task. Maybe just to go and talk to somebody about something. Maybe even another Christian to say something, to do something. Maybe to do something here at church, be part of a ministry. Maybe it's to even go to something, that the scale of what Paul and Barnabas did, to, to sail overseas, to take the good news to a whole other nation. It may be something very insignificant, it may be something huge and anything in between. The size or the scale of the task isn't important. What's important is that we're obedient to God's call on our lives. The important thing is that we complete the tasks that God has asked us to do. I wonder, has God called you to do something? Or to serve him in some way? 
If he has, then can I encourage you to be faithful to his calling? If you're anything like me, um, you know, we, we put things off, we procrastinate, don't we? And, and we, you know, I'll, I'll get around to it eventually. And, and we put things off and we, we, we never quite get there, or so often I don't. I have a kind of to-do list and it just seems to grow by the day and, and it's now about four pages in a Word document and it just keeps growing. And, and, and so often we shunt things down that to-do list. But we need to complete, write this down, we need to complete the tasks that God has given me to do and trust him to provide in the midst of that. I need to complete the tasks. If God has put something on my heart, if God has spoken to you, to me, to do something, be it large, be it small, be it inconvenient or convenient, the call is to be faithful and to be, to be obedient. And we need to trust that he will provide for us in different ways as we complete the task. We might feel totally ill-equipped or lacking in experience to do what we feel God's calling us to do. We may be daunted by the scale of what God's calling us to do. Or it might involve trusting God to provide finance for us, to perhaps even leave our job and, and, and step out of that comfort of financial security. But you know, if God calls us to do something, he will equip us and he will provide for us. This is what it means by being committed to the grace of God. Paul and Barnabas didn't go you know, with some great big kind of missionary package of funding and all this kind of stuff in place. And that's great, and it's great missionary societies can do that today, but they just went. And they were committed to the grace of God. Claire and I packed up all our belongings into the back of a Luton van, which was uh, a little bit uh, depressing in itself, that all our worldly goods, and there was plenty of space left over. And we packed our, our flat up in War's End, and we went to Hereford um, about eight, 17, 18, 19 years ago, whatever it was, to work, for a full-time, uh, to work full-time for a church there. We had no money, we had no salary, and I don't say that to, to talk about how, you know, how good we were doing that. What I want to make the point of that is, is, is simply this. God was totally faithful to us in that. We left behind a salary. We, we left our jobs. We went and we trusted in God's grace. And we committed ourselves. And this church committed us to the grace of God. And God provided for us financially. We, we were never and never have been in debt. God has provided for us every step of the way. God didn't provide all our wants, but he does provide all our needs. Tonight I'm going to preach over in a church in, C- in Cumbria. And there's a guy called John Heron who is one of the leaders of that church. And he spoke at our wedding. And he spoke from those very verses that my God will supply all your needs. And he very specifically said at our wedding, he won't supply all your wants, but he will supply all your needs. And there's a huge difference, isn't there, between what we want and what we need. But our testimony, and I don't say, and this isn't about, this is about God. God has provided all our needs and more. And it's been amazing. And everybody I know that steps out and trusts God, God will provide us. Whether it's in something very insignificant and perhaps private and behind the scenes, he will equip us, he will provide for us. Or whether it's something you know, really significant and life-changing, God will provide for us, he will equip us. And it's so important that we're obedient to God's call in our life, whether that involves sharing our faith with a work colleague, maybe God's been kind of prompting you to, to cross the room at work and have that conversation or to say to someone, you know, let's go out for a coffee, I want to talk to you about something. It's so important that we respond to those promptings of God or whether it's about getting involved in a ministry here at Regent or maybe going overseas with the gospel and, and, and all sorts of things in between. It's important that we're faithful and complete those tasks and trusting that God will provide for us in that. As Luke describes the last part of this great missionary journey, he says this, they preached the good news in that city and they won 
a large number of disciples. Luke describes the, the work that Paul and Barnabas did as they were faithful to God's call on their lives to win a large number of disciples. He says they preached and they won a large number of disciples. It was through their hard work effort and efforts, and it was a lot of hard work, often risking their own lives in the process. They worked hard, they preached, they achieved great things. They were responsible for many disciples and for many churches being planted. And that was absolutely true. But then Luke puts it another way at the end of this section. He says, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he, God, had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. As Paul and Barnabas report back to their home church, all that God has done, all that they have done on this first great missionary journey, they were well aware of all that they had done and all their efforts. And they probably had the scars to prove it. I suspect Paul had scars and marks on his face and on his body. You know, here I am. Here's all my efforts. I've got the marks to prove it. But they put it in a slightly different way. Luke says they reported all that God had done and how God had made it possible for them to preach to the Gentiles. It was their hard work. It was their preaching. It was their great efforts. But it was God who was at work in them and through them. And it was God who'd opened that door, who'd made it possible for them to be received into people's hearts, for people to open their hearts to the message that they were preaching. And in this, we see one of the great mysteries of serving God, and especially in spreading the good news about Jesus. God is at work in us and through us. God doesn't need us. God could just light up the sky with the gospel message. He could, he could command all men everywhere immediately just to bow down. He could do that. He doesn't. And in the mystery of his will, God has chosen to use people like you and me to be his fellow workmen to have that huge privilege of being the people that are his hands and his feet, the people who, who live for him and work for him here on planet Earth. God doesn't need us. And when people are saved, it is totally a work of God. We think we contribute to it. We even think we contribute when we get saved. We don't. It is totally a sovereign work of God. And yet God uses, chooses to use people like you and me to achieve the, his will. It's through our preaching, it's through our sharing the gospel over lunch at work with a colleague that people get saved. It's God who does it, but he does it through us. It's, it's, it's through us preaching, it's through us giving a tract to somebody. It, it's through all these things. We preach, we use our brains to think of the best words to say. We use our skills, we use our abilities to say it as best we can. And yet it's the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work in us. And I think that's fantastic because it takes the pressure off us, doesn't it? It's not about how good I am at saying this. It's not about how wonderful I am about sharing my faith with my neighbor or my, or my work colleague or whatever. I can trust God because he's bigger than me. Yet, he does want me to do my best in the middle of all that. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that takes those words and gives them power. And it's the Holy Spirit that opens people's hearts to respond to what we say. And as we're obedient to God's command for us to serve him, and especially in spreading the good news, he works in us and he works through us. And he uses our strengths and our abilities, which he's given to us, but he provides the power to bring the results. And so as we serve God in whatever capacity he calls us to do that in, whether that's through sharing the good news with a friend or family member, teaching in Sunday school, leading sunbeams, traveling about to be a missionary, and everything else in between, we need to work as if it all depended on me, but pray as if it all depended on God. I think it was Spurgeon who said this first. I need to work as though it all depended on me. And yet pray as if it all depends on God. We need to give 
our best to God, to work hard, to be faithful, to do the best we can. If we're teaching the kids or young people, we don't just wing it, we don't just turn up and do it. We give it our very best. We put the very best efforts we can because this is God's work and we give it our best. If we're sharing the gospel with family or friend, uh, uh, friends or family members, we make sure that we're, that we're ready and able to share our stories, that we kind of rehearse our lines, as it were, we, that we're able to explain the gospel accurately and, and faithfully and effectively. Whatever we do, we give it our best, putting our best effort into what we're doing, as if everything depended on my strength and my effort and my hard work. And yet, at the same time, we trust in God. And we know that without his involvement, the very best skills and abilities we have are utterly powerless. And it's this great mystery of how God works in us and through us. And so we pray and we ask God to help us as if it all totally depended on him, which is true. Both are true and important. We work as if it was all down to us, and we pray as if it all depended on God. So what does it mean to be faithful to God's calling on our lives? We're called to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and to surrender all to him. And as disciples of Jesus, as, as, as living followers of Jesus, part of what that means is to make disciples of other people so that they too can follow Jesus and in turn go on to make other disciples, helping them, instructing them encouraging them, strengthening them every day in their walk with God. And as disciples of Jesus, we need to be ready for opposition and for persecution. If the world hated Jesus and opposed him, then it will hate and oppose those who follow him. We need to be obedient to God and complete the task that he's given us to do, whatever they might be. And if God has put something on your heart and you haven't yet quite got round to it, can I encourage you to, to go home and do that, whatever it might be, whatever that might look like. And as we do so, trust that God will equip us, give us the words to say, give us the finance we need, whatever it might be. And as we carry out those tasks <coughs> given to us by God, especially as we spread the good news about Jesus, we need to work hard and to give God our best, as if everything depended on us, and yet praying to God as if it all depended on him, which it does. Crying out to him to empower us and to go ahead of us, to open the door in people's lives. In a few weeks' time, Rob and I are going to be uh, preaching one week on, uh, I'll be preaching the first week on Paul and as they go over into Philippi, into Europe for the first time with the gospel. And then Rob will preach the second week on how God opens the heart of Lydia. Paul preaches, but it's God who opens her heart. God is going ahead of Paul and is already at work in her life. And we need to be doing that as we are going ahead, as we're going out into the world, crying out to God to go ahead of us and to open people's hearts and lives as we share the good news. Let's pray, and then the band will lead us in one more song. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the great call on our lives to be disciples of Jesus. Help us to be, to live out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Father, please show us those things in our life. Please remind us of those things in our life that you've called us to do. Those tasks that you've put on our heart, big or small. Help us to be faithful to your call in our lives. Help us to trust you, to provide for us, to equip us in whatever we're called to do. Father, we pray that we would give you our very best work in whatever we're doing, as if it all depended on us, and yet pray as if it all depended on you, trusting you to provide, to equip, to work in hearts and lives. Bless us, we pray. Help us to be those committed,
devoted followers of Jesus in all that we do. Help us this week, we pray. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.